Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So I've always kind of believed that conversations about generations, generational discussions that pit one cohort against another are just fruitless. They're useless. Also, I don't like people saying, okay, boomer to me. (laughs) So um, so I was a little suspicious of the show that we're doing today when senior producer Lily Tyson first proposed it to me. But it's growing on me. I mean, look, in a way, all this generation stuff is foolish generalization. On the other hand, you have to have some way of talking about ways in which different age cohorts are shaped, molded uh, by the events around them and their own aging brains and bodies. So we're going to talk about all that, hopefully in a non-fruitless way. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. That, of course, was The Who. I believe most of them, well, Keith Moon, of course, already passed from this earth. The whole hope I die before I get old stuff. It's one of the first ideas from your youth that you part ways with uh, as you get older, uh, most of us anyway. We're going to be talking about generations today. Obviously, that song is in so many ways so emblematic of a, a sense of impatience, generational impatience that was rampant in the land in, what, the late 60s, early 70s, uh, a kind of rejection of the values of the preceding generations, uh, and and thin-skinned irritability uh, about any judgment coming from those generations towards the uh, sort of the, the youth movement of that moment. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I think it will be argued today, probably back and forth a little bit, that every generation does some version of it, that they may word it differently, and musically it might sound differently, 
but there's a way in which the past is prologue, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, all that stuff. So I'll stop babbling and begin to introduce the guests here. Here with us for the whole show is Bobby Duffy, professor of public policy and director of the Policy Institute at King's College London. He is significantly the author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. So first of all, a welcome to the show. Exciting to have you here. It's a great book. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Colin. Really great to be here. So maybe maybe we actually have to begin with something as, as basic mm. as a definition. I mean, what is a generation? We, we fling the word around. Does it really have a, a solid uh, definition? I mean, it is. It's basically a way to segregate people on when they were born uh, rather than their age at any one point in time. So um, obviously the terms that we'd be most familiar with is that baby boomers running through to Generation X and then millennials and then um, Gen Z. And so it's these uh, birth year periods of somewhere between 20 and 14, 15 years that you tend to group people together. Right. And, and we should say, probably for today's conversation, we are talking about the four generations you just named here. The mm. silent generation probably has some members kind of hanging on here and there. I think we're still working on names for what comes after Z or Z or Zoom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, but it's sort of those four that, that we're talking about. So notwithstanding the title of your book, I mean, you do explore ways in which it, it's useful to have these conversations, right? They're, they shouldn't yeah. be maybe quite as, as all-consuming uh, or all-explaining as some people want them to be. But what's the usefulness of talking about people in terms of generational cohorts? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, if I was trying to sum up the book in one sentence, it would be that generational thinking, splitting people into generational types, is a, is a really big idea that's been horribly corrupted by terrible stereotypes, myths, and cliches. So there is something fundamentally important about when you were born. Um, and it's based on a few simple facts, which is the, the well-evidenced facts that when you're going through your formative years in your teens and early 20s, what's happening then has a bigger impact on you for your uh, rest of your life and things happening at other points in your life. We're more malleable, more open to change, all of those types of things. So um, there is something about uh, when you're born shaping you. And we kind, of, we kind of understand that instinctively, that we're different from our parents and our kids are different from us because their experiences and context has been different. So there's something really useful and important. And, and in fact, I would say essential to understand society and how it's changing within that. But then the challenge is, the problem has been, we give these labels uh, and then we attach lots of stereotypes to those labels that are, uh, most of them are myths and um, or ex you know, real exaggerations of the uh, reality. And that's where we get into trouble with these types, this, this type of uh, categorization when it seems that you can sum up millions of people <laughs> in one adjective like narcissistic or materialistic or selfish, um, depending on which generation you're talking about. Right. It's my impression but please correct me, that mm. that a lot of the identity that attaches itself to any given generation, uh, some, of the, some of it being fair, some of it being unfair, um, 
it really kind of happens that the kind of the cradle of it is youth, right? That there's a way in which, you know, we mm. we understand maybe baby boomers a little bit in terms of the who and, and everything that went along with that. Mm. We, we understand uh, Gen Xers in terms of kind of that 90s thing. There were just so many movies out at the time, like Reality Bites and Slacker and Singles. Mm. And, you know, and so that sort of formed our impression. Uh, millennials and Zoomers, they don't have too many other choices <laughs> but to be defined by their youth. But there's something about that, right? That who you are when you're, say, in your 20s, that's how people are going to think about your generation, at least, you know, not not entirely, but in large part. Fair? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. And again, that, that kind of that view of um, generations as cultural identities that are shaped um, there's, uh, by their, their fashions and their music and whatever the zeitgeist is around that time is really important. But, but it also, I mean, generations is more useful throughout life, the life uh, cycle of a generation than that in the sense that uh, taking baby boomers for any as an example is yes they you know they had that image of uh, breaking from their parents and having more liberal open attitudes but also when you look at the economics of baby boomers that's really important in, uh, in shaping them as a cohort as well and has continued throughout their life and it's not so much about those cultural references it's more that they were fortunate enough to live through uh, a period of economic growth and where they could build up a lot of private wealth assets and uh, a, a decent sort of economic position for themselves. And that that is also defining of the baby boomers in some ways, that they've had that right. good fortune, good uh, circumstances in which they, their financial position is quite different from the financial position facing generations that came after them. In right. the US, the UK, and lots of other countries. I'm so glad that you put it that way because um, I've got a, a clip here I want to play. So there, there's, if there's ever been a quintessential cinematic attempt to define baby boomers, I think it is the movie The Big Chill. Uh, and, mm. and The Big Chill, you know, it juxtaposes the two things that you just talked about. These, it's a group of people who are who've gotten back together. They went to college together during you know yes. late 60s, uh, but now they are at, in that moment of wealth acquisition. One of them is running a pretty successful uh, sneaker. Mm. Or running shoe company and one of them is working for People Magazine and, and uh, there's a scene where they're sitting around the dinner table and they're kind of talking about who they are now versus who they were a, a really scant period of time uh, a short short amount of time before that uh, Jean, let's hear A1 I don't know, I just I'd hate to think that it was all just fashion What? Our commitment It wasn't, we accomplished things all evidence to the contrary. Now you're just taking a position. Sometimes I think I put that time down, pretended it wasn't real, just so I can live with how I am now. You know what I mean? Nick, help me with these bleeding hearts. I know what Alex would say. What? What's for dessert? The kind of forced laughter uh, at the end comes from a, a younger guest at the table, Meg, Meg Tilly, who's at least on the cusp probably of being Gen X, maybe not quite. Um, but, you know, Bobby, I would sort of say, I would argue that every generation has a version of this, that notion of to what degree if we do embrace the ethos that we had uh, in, in, let's say, our 20s, can we hang on to that? And to what degree do we begin betraying it? And one of the things yeah. that you talk about, one, one of the ways that we may stray from the, the, the paddock that we thought we were going to be in <laughs> is just life events, right? Life comes yeah. along and, and you have to deal with stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is such a good example of these competing effects on what shapes us. And so when, when I look in the book, I, I split it into three, there's three different types of effects that uh, explain all change in society and us as individuals, how we develop. And <clears throat> that cohort effect of generation when we grew up, shaping us is one of them. But we've also got really powerful life cycle effects that pull us in a particular direction. It's like a current within the sea that pulls you along as it makes you change in particular ways that are kind of consistent, often consistent across generations when you leave home, when you get married, when you have kids, uh, when you get a job, when you retire, all of those types of steps pull us in a particular direction. That's where you see that pattern repeated and similar sorts of angst about giving up our child or our young person ideals as we get older. That's kind of repeated through history. And then you also have period effects. The third effect is period effects. We are then also subject to big shocks that go on at particular times, at moments in time, like things like a financial crisis or a pandemic. They also have these big shaping effects, but we're all affected to some degree. So the, the, the thing that I try to do in the book, and the thing I think there's a useful shortcut for understanding what type of change are we looking at, is you just ask yourself, is this really about a generation or is it about um, young people or being a particular age or a particular stage in life, or is it because something in particular is happening across society as a whole? Is it a cohort, life cycle, or period effect that we're seeing here? And you quite often see the myths and stereotypes about generations are because they're ascribing something to a whole cohort that's going to stay with them for life, when it's actually, we're just describing young people, um, and that will be repeated again throughout history. Yeah, I so one thing that I say, in fact, I said it on Slack um, just a few minutes ago because people were telling an OK Boomer joke, and I hate being OK <laughs> Boomer, uh, and uh, so perhaps defensively, but I do mean it. I, I said, really, uh, my belief is that w- every time I meet somebody from Generation Z uh, or or X or a, a, a millennial and they're kind of OK Boomering me or something like that, I always think, when you're 67 years old, which is how old I am right now, you will be less flexible, less open to new ideas and less comfortable with tech than I am right now. Uh, whatever the tech is at the time, it'll all be AI and robots and you'll hate it and you the, well, you won't like the music. <laughs> you won't like the music and you won't think the people had any talent. And and I mean, I think there is the, the kind of elasticity that we have at certain points in our life, not everybody because we are generalizing. I mean, it does it does yeah. begin to decline no matter which generation you, you belong to. Yeah, no, that's an absolute fact. You're spot on with that. And in some ways, you know, you'd be worried about a society where older people weren't uncomfortable with the change that they're seeing, because that would mean society isn't moving forward. We're kind of stagnating. If, it, if nothing is changing and making us unsettled, I'm, I'm sort of mid-Gen X, and I you know, I get lost on lots of new developments as, as well now. And there's a great Douglas Adam line about uh, how things, that, things that, new technology that you grew up with as, uh, before you were in your teens are just natural, they exist. Things that come through in your teens are exciting and, uh, uh, you know, a new development and things that come after that are scary and wrong. And there is there is an element of um, that which is essential for society. It's not something we should be depressed about or worried about. We, we, we should be worried if we don't see that. Right. I, I think, you know, just to get to that life event uh, issue, I think that's really important. In reading your book, I was thinking about the fact that 
You know, my son was born in 1989, and I kind of don't really know the 90s as well as I know other decades. Um, you know, I mean, I can rattle off the names of all those Gen X movies the way I did a few seconds ago, but I, ha- I haven't seen a lot of them actually because that happened to be a, that happens to be a moment I think when when you have very very young children in the house where there's a pullback and a turning inward, the household becomes itself much more important at a very kind of nuclear family level, uh, and engagement with culture seems to. Uh, seems to wane quite a bit, at least temporarily. But you can say a little bit more about what the data says about that. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there's there's um, lots of great data on how things like our our engagement and our focus changes as we age, and you know, you see it reflected in all sorts of ways. That the U-shaped happiness curve is real. Um, this this sense that you've got uh, yourself pretty happy in life uh, coming into adulthood, and then it dips all the way to uh, in fact, I think my exact age now is the very bottom of the U-shaped curve of happiness. So I'm like at the the bottom of this thing where you've got that pressure of uh, youngish children and parents to look after, uh, your own parents to look after as well, and careers and all of that stuff going on. And then it, the good news is it tends to get better after that. You tend to be able to lift your head uh, a bit after that and start to engage more in those interests and and have that sense of uh, greater uh, fulfillment from that. So yes, no, this these patterns of life cycle effects are incredibly consistent across uh, different cultures, um, different countries. They've even found similar sorts of things among gorillas, where there is a, a midlife uh, a midlife misery dip among other species, as far as they they can tell. So this is. There is, there is something fundamental in we are pulled along these very powerful currents that have recognizable features across um, different times and spaces. That also helps me understand something about Generation X, which is that, well, I mean, just to go back to the 90s and all those 90s movies and stuff like that, there was sort of a sense uh, of who that cohort was that was conveyed by all that culture. Gene, we're going to drop down to A3. I'm just going to play this little clip from uh, Pump Up the mm-hmm. Volume. I just arrived in this stupid suburb. I have no friends, no money, no car, no license. And even if I did have a license, all I could do is drive out to some stupid mall. Maybe if I'm lucky, play some video games, smoke a joint, and get stupid. You see, there's nothing to do anymore. Everything decent's been done. All the great themes have been used up, turned into theme parks. So I don't really find it exactly cheerful to be living in the middle of a totally, like, exhausted decade where there's nothing to look forward to and no one to look up to. That was deep. (sighs) So um, there was a way in which the message about that generation at the time of the 90s was that this kind of languid apathy and 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 maybe some anomie and 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 hopelessness kind of mm. did define it and that if you were going to embrace something other than that you were going to have to make an affirmative choice to do that uh, otherwise yeah. that was going to be your default setting and mm. and I wonder I wonder how you feel about a that and one thing that I the u-shape thing is really interesting to me because I see generation X right now as containing a lot of anger. You know, here in the mm. U.S., you know, these guys like Joe Rogan and Dan Bongino and Tucker Carlson, they're all Generation Xers, mm. and they're really mad about something. 
and, 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 and the, even the idea, you know, the, the stereotype here in the U.S. of the Karen, the Karen is, you know, this mm-hmm. kind of transphobic uh, and xenophobic and race phobic uh, person who's probably the Gen X mother of Gen Z kids. Uh, so I don't know. Give me give me the, your take on all that. Yeah, I mean, I've got, I'm, as I say, I'm Gen X, and I've got some sympathy with them in many ways because we're the sort of forgotten middle child of the generations. Everyone focused on millennials and, and baby booms, and we kind of get left out. We've got the cool name of Gen X um, <laughs> to start with, but then we don't really get talked about very much. And I think there is a, there's a little bit of that middle child status that is uh, that shows up in those types of behaviors because we kind of um, get lost in the conversation unless we get really angry <laughs> uh, and um, draw attention to ourselves because we're not we've got these cultural and economic uh, cultural and demographic behemoths of uh, baby boomers and millennials uh, either side of us with a, a little bit a bit of blankness around us and, it, and it's kind of it's slightly different in different countries this the trend so comparing the US with the UK there are a couple of really important trends within that is in the US because wage stagnation and the um, that sense of McJobs and uh, dead end kind of careers kind of started a bit earlier in the US you've definitely got these really big generation shaping trends uh, in the US where um, that that sense of disappointment in not having the future that was promised to us of um, of going to college getting getting a better job, paying off their student debt, all of those um, types of aspects, that, that sense of disappointment does shape that disengagement in many ways. In the UK, slightly different. We, we had the stagnation a bit, wage stagnation, those types of economic declines slightly later. But what you see in the UK is actually, if you were trying to identify a suicide generation or there's this incredible blip in suicide figures and drug deaths and things in the UK Gen Xs and uh, it it follows them through life and it's a little bit of a reflection again of being caught between in the middle between two trends where uh, more drug use or drug drug availability worse economic prospects but also not that sense of being able to open up about emotions and uh, that connection to uh, talking therapies and all those types of things. So we we had this kind of squeeze on Gen X in the UK. So both different sort of circumstances in the US to the UK, but neither of them particularly happy positions for us as a as a cohort on average. I, I came across this uh, wonderful quote from a writer named Teus Duland in an article in Vice magazine. Jaded Gen X slackers nihilistically accept the machine of which they are a part and can dissect its mm. fundamental facile and evil nature with all the clarity and urgency of a 19th century romantic poet. Uh, <laughs> and I think there is for that generation a kind of knife's edge down which it runs its thumb uh, in, in the sense of, Am I going to regard? It's just say, well, reality bites. What am I going to do? I'm just going to have to kind of live in this fairly, fairly corrosive and debased world, or am I going to fight back against it? I sense the millennials and 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 leading edge of, of Z are maybe a little bit more interested in fighting back than the Xers. But how right or wrong would that be? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is that aspect of that first generation, particularly in the U- U.S., that came through realizing that 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 dream is kind of gone. I think that d- does uh, hit them hard. I think what we've got to be careful of, though, is um, is having that sense that we've got a coming generation that is going to save us or has a very different kind of um, uh, 
uh, mindset on this. And this this is a repeated mistake in lots of generational work. There's a there's a lot of books that were written about generations that that saw millennials as a coming civic generation that was going to transform America with its incredibly high voting turnout levels and incredible political activism. And it's not really uh, what's happened. We've always got this tendency to think, <clears throat> we've got this, these dual tendencies, either to think, well, simultaneously in our heads often, that the next generation of young people are either the worst in history. This is like a constant in our thought. We always think today's young are the uniquely wrong or weird in some sort of way. But we've also got this counter tendency to think of them as saviors and they're they're going to have a much better character than us and are going to engage more in this. And Barack Obama does that a lot in terms of um, looking forward. Uh, he did that a lot and still does in his autobiography, looking forward that this is the generation that really believes in equality and is going to uh, implement it, for example, or right. climate or deal with climate change. And I, I think there's this sort of really interesting dichotomy between either really running down the next generation or lionizing them so that they're going to be saviors. And the reality is often in the middle. They're not as different. It's kind of a gradual change. So I I think that there is definite truth in Gen X being the first to come into that kind of sense of really lost um, opportunity. But I'm not sure that there's such a bright um, such a positive switch going to be seen with coming generations. The Obama stuff in your book is really interesting that way. And 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 he's interesting too, just because he's really about as much at the tail end of the baby boom as you could be and still, mm. you know, make it under the wire. Uh, but but yeah, that idea that he has that you cite where he even talks about, you know, if you could pick any time in the history of the world to be born, you'd pick now. Because like, you know, yeah. <laughs> the rest of us are going, really? Because it doesn't look so good. Anyway, <laughs> we, we, I could talk about this for a long time, but we have to take a break. I'm already in trouble with Lily Tyson about this. So let's take a break. We'll come back. Just in case anybody, anybody's hearing that song for the first time, boomers, um, you should know that uh, Elvis Costello thought it was great. He wasn't troubled. He said that's the way music works. You know, you just do stuff that sounds like things that other people have done a long time ago. So, um, but music, music is such an incredible trigger for this conversation we're having about generations. As Gina Amatruda, who's running the board today, pointed out, we went out with Neil Young, who's kind of in that song, Making Some Common Cause, uh, as a baby boomer with the silent generation. Although now, as of today, Neil Young is at full on war with Gen Xer Joe Rogan and is said to Spotify, either he goes or I go. It turns out it's Neil. 
hell. Uh, anyway, we're talking about generations with uh, Bobby Duffy, uh, professor of public policy and director of uh, the Policy Institute at King's College in London and the author of The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. Uh, joining us now also is Justin Charity, a senior staff writer for The Ringer. He wrote the recent article, It's Time to Accept That Millennials and Generation Z Are the Same Generation. Uh, I should say that our third segment... Uh, uh, I think our, I know our guest on the third segment pretty well. He's not going to agree with that. At least I don't think so. But uh, first of all, Justin, welcome to the conversation. Um, I mean, in, in a nutshell, if you can, make the case that you're making in the piece. Well, basically, right, it's, it's sort of a juxtaposition. If you think back, if you think back as a boomer, for instance, and you try to, to remember how you felt about hearing NWA, right, for the first time, um, that's that's a musical shift, right? And the millennials have a similar musical shift, right? Of um, you know, they they single-handedly moved the capital of rap music from Los Angeles and New York to Atlanta, right? And these are sort of generational markers you might make if you're looking at things uh, from the perspective of a music critic. And if you try to if you try to find a similar fault line between millennials and Zoomers now in the current musical landscape. I don't think there's there is a point of comparison. I don't think that fault line really exists. It's interesting uh, too, though, because uh, you know, um, and, and let's bring uh, Bobby back into this. You know, Bobby Duffy, as a baby boomer, I look at millennials and 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 Zoomers. It's easier to say than Gen Zers uh, and millennials <laughs> and Zoomers. And, and I to they, to me, they are a somewhat undifferentiated blob. Uh, mm. But I also wouldn't expect my opinion about that to matter very much. It's interesting <laughs> to have Justin say something like this. Yeah, I think it's healthy that your opinion doesn't matter. Just going back to that point <clears throat> before is, um, yes, like this is we've had our time and it's um, and it's right for us to be, be uh, confused or um, uh, unattached to this type of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. It was a really interesting piece um, from Justin, and uh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, from I'm a, I can't really I'm such a bad expert on the difference, the differences between uh, Zoomer and Millennial music. It all sounds the same to me, absolutely. But then I'm not um, a, a a music critic or cultural commentator on those types of things, and I, I just feel confused about. Um, I can't see any difference and it feels a bit of a mess of a scene right now um but that again that's probably how how i should feel about um that music and, and and maybe there's more gradations than than i'm aware of but i do i i think the absolutely culturally you will get these par periods and patches where there's not much differentiation um whether that means that we can then say that um that millennials and Gen Z are the same generation in a broader sense of you know, broader cultural trends and then other social trends within them. I think there are quite distinctive characteristics between them in their relationship to technology, um, how they grew up with different sorts of relationships with technology, and then economically, um, very different contexts that they they have uh, been through. Both not very lucky contexts for them. And then you know, my I I wrote a piece for the New Scientist on Generation COVID and the extent to which we're going to see how that the long term effects of of this COVID experience people that are going through this in, in their formative years. And you can see how that may be a, a key shaping aspect of uh, both the education impacts and then the early career impacts on that that part of uh, those Zoomer, that Zoomer group. So, yeah, I think the I couldn't argue at all about the, the music scene. 
but it's much broader than that. There is, there's much more to that generational definition and identity that's really the, where there are clear differences. Well, I think also, Justin, I mean, just to stay with music for a second, music is a great generational marker. Uh, and and I, I think it's also interesting because I, I, the younger the generation is, the more it's picking out music that, that they kind of hope older people won't like that much so that they can, A, get mad at the older people for, for now. I mean, like my parents didn't get the Beatles. There's nothing I could say to them about the Beatles that my parents would ever have bought. You know, they just they weren't going to do it. Uh, and and ultimately, probably I didn't want them listening to the Beatles anyway. Uh, I mean, the worst thing that you can do in some ways if you're a parent, and I did this to my son, so I know, is to really learn a lot about his his music. Um, and, and so, I, I don't know, Justin, how does that look to you? I mean, in a way, you could say that millennials who are still trying to be cool uh, might have some incentive to try to figure out uh, what Generation Z likes and then like it too. I don't know if that's necessarily what happens, though, in this case, right? Like Olivia Rodrigo um, is a great example of it, right? Where there's, it's such a, it's such an explicit through line, right? In, in terms of the influences, whether you're talking about grunge, right? Which goes a little further back to Gen X, or whether you're talking about pop punk, like that's stuff that, you know, millennials don't have to pretend to be into pop punk, <laughs> you know? It's the music that was on the radio when we grew up. Um, and that's what makes it feel like such a disorienting, conversation a lot of the time is that I don't think millennials have to do much work at all really to understand what Olivia Rodrigo is about or what little Nas X is about. Right. Um, my, my other sense, though, let me just swing back to Bobby on this for a second, mm-hmm. is that, and th- this sort of gets to what we were talking about right at the end of the previous segment, is that m- millennials and Generation Z do sort of make common cause in, in terms of rejection of, uh, of the older generations and all the ways that we're talking about before. You, you know, our generations, we didn't do anything about climate change. We just we didn't do anything about all the economic problems that are kind of depriving them of some of the opportunities that we had that, that they might have more in common just by not being uh, baby boomers and, and, or, and older Gen X uh, inhabitants than, than anything else. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the, the the broader social and economic circumstances for these groups does bring them together in in some sense. In in the sense that we really haven't turned around the future for young people. Um, that sense, one of the one of the most depressing bits of the research um, that comes out in the book is that uh, in the late nineteen nineties or early two thousands in the US and the UK. Uh, most people thought that the future was going to be better for their young people today compared to their parents. And that that is now down to around a quarter of people in the US and the UK who think that that's going to be the case. So there is that sense that both generations have grown up coming into adulthood um, in that context of actually what's the better future, what's the brighter future here, uh, and with, with no clear direction on where that's going to be coming from. And then the pandemic, obviously, obviously not uh, helping with that. So I, I do think, I mean, I, it's interesting in Justin's piece about the focus on the digital monoculture, that that, that flattens things. I think that's, that is really interesting when you've got um, communities and platforms where you can have lots of different groups uh, of different age ranges and generations that are sharing the same sort of content. Is there, is there a flattening effect from that? digital monoculture and then an economic 
uh, monoculture, you can definitely see how um, nothing much has changed. Certainly nothing much has got better for, for those generations. So there is those connections. Equally, though, you know, loads and loads of turf wards within within and between generations with I just did a a piece on you know a uh, how older millennials and gen z feel more connected than older millennials and um uh, younger millennials so the, there's fractures even within these groups where one end feels much closer to the other end uh, to another generation than their own main generation so we've still got that sense of um, fracturing and identity mono uh, you know, micro identities within these groups. But it, it yeah, I, I take, I do take the point that it's not really showing itself in these big cultural trends of a distinctive music, musical identity. Right. I, I do think that the digital thing is really interesting, Justin. And, and well, actually, but let's back up for a second and just stay with music again for a second, just because your piece is so interesting that way. And I, I don't know, I'm one of these quixotic people who believes at age 67, that good music is good music. And I like, I really like Phoebe Bridgers a lot. You know, of course I work in public radio. Of course I'm going to like Phoebe Bridgers, but, um, you know, and, um, and I listen to a fair amount of hip hop and stuff like that, but I'm wrong, right? I'm wrong in the sense that, um, I I stumbled a few years ago, uh, uh, across a Facebook conversation uh, with a bunch of people from my generation, boomers, a little bit older than me, boomers, uh, probably graduated around 1970 from a pretty prestigious, uh, East coast college who, and the, the conversation had started off by somebody saying, who is Cardi B anyway? And do I need to know who this person is? And I, to my horror, I watched as person after person jumped on and said, you don't need, oh, these people have no talent, doesn't make any difference, you know, uh, <laughs> these people have nothing to offer us. And, and I mean, not only did it seem kind of racist, but it also sounded exactly like our parents talking to us about the Rolling Stones. And, and, and I do think there's sort of a way in which, you know, these divides aren't meant to heal. I mean, in a way, you're kind of probing that with the with the Zoomers and the uh, uh, and the Millennials is you know should should the divide maybe even be in sh- be be sharper or would it? I sort of still feel like it would be a better world if we could figure out each other's music a little better. Well, I think that uh, so drawing that comparison, right? The reaction to Cardi B versus the reaction to the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. One thing I, I think a lot about now that I've talked to people after publishing that piece is just there's a there's a lost distinction here between generation, right, and age. Um, it, it totally makes sense to me, right? It's totally sensible to me that uh, there is a point in everyone's life where we just age out of youth culture. And, and Cardi B is very much an artist who has developed to appeal to the, the contemporary youth culture, right? And I don't, I don't think not understanding Cardi B is about the specific generational label or cohort so much as it's about, well, this is your age now and you're kind of beyond the market for really any of this. And I think that's where, you know, we don't even have to talk about just music anymore. I think, I think if you were trying to make, if you're trying to have a basis for generational distinction rather than just, you know, the kind of curmudgeon that sets in with age. I think web tech would be the basis, right? I think web tech is revolutionary. I think it makes for ways of life that are just unfathomable, unfa- unfathomable to people, um, you know, of, of earlier generations. But I think where it gets a little bit ridiculous is when people try to kind of find slice um, 
web technology into these eras, right? It's like there's the generation that grew up with the iPhone 4 as opposed to the generation <laughs> that grew up with the iPhone 9. You know, it, that's where it feels like we're being a little too precious and wanting to roll out generations with frequency of iPhone releases at this point. Right. And and so, Bobby, I you know, I had a similar thought. I agree with what he just said in that, you know, to me, my obviously my perspective is blinkered by my my generational place but um to me the continental divide the real kind of defining watershed thing between so-called generations really is actually the digital revolution. I mean, it was as profound a revolution in communication as Gutenberg was, as far as I'm concerned. And so where you fell on either side of that line, uh, I, I think has dramatic implications. Uh, and now the people who like didn't get digital culture at all are now in the process of dying out. Um, but and, and I guess an argument could be made that, yes, maybe not in that ridiculously finely grained way that Justin was just talking about, about different iPhone editions, but ways in which you have adapted to digital culture may be one of the real, in terms of those public events, those historical events, it, it may be one of the really, really big things, right? Yeah, oh yeah, it's definitely certainly important. But yeah, absolutely, I agree with Justin's point about it. This goes through all recent history of trying to name generations. It was supposed to be a Nintendo generation of a couple of decades ago, where it was kind of you know, any games console was... Uh, going to define the next generation it's not how it works these are really small little uh micro trends that you, you're not really bothered about but yes the growing up with um this type of technology is a really important aspect of it and you can kind of you go back to the real sociological and philosophical thinking about generations and some of the far uh, some of the founders of that type of thinking like Karl Mannheim a Hungarian sociologist always put technolo technological change at the center of generational identity development and the speed with which generations are formed the faster the technology the faster they're formed he was really thinking though one one bit of caution i would have on this is when he was talking about technological change he was talking about uh, control of the means of production really in you know, after the industrial revolution so yes there's a cultural element to are you a digital native or not but the real generation defining elements so uh, often have have to have that connection to the economic as in who's who's in charge who's creating uh, the value and that's that's a really important part of this too is uh, how quickly older people's older generation skills go out of date and become less valuable economically is is a really important part of um, that connection that connection between technological change and generational identity um so yeah so it's definitely a key aspect of it but it's not just about the digital native thing it's about ai automation and how quickly you can develop your skills in all sorts of things Right. Uh, and, and a lot of that is still to come. I mean, we'll be <clears throat> kind of figuring out as it unfolds. But reading your book, I was thinking, at one point I was thinking, wow, yeah, I mean, we're walking around with these things in our pockets or in our hands that have more computing power than what was used to send human beings to the moon. Mm -hmm. And you can watch Pornhub. Uh, and <laughs> that, you know, that really is maybe a game changer all by itself. Uh, maybe it's the Pornhub generation. Anyway, uh, Bobby Duffy's going to stay with us. Thanks to Justin Charity, senior staff writer for The Ringer. Say hi to Brian Curtis for us. Uh, <laughs> he's an old, old time friend of the show. Uh, it's time to accept that millennials and Gen Z are the same generation as his piece. We recommend it to you. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to a very bright young person from Gen Z. I happen to know because I used to be his teacher. You'd play with me like a child.
Okay, some thank yous, starting with Jean Amatruda, who has stepped in here to run the board today. Uh, Jean uh, is a person of considerable importance here at the company, but Kat uh, Pastor was uh, not available today, so thanks to Jean for helping out. Also, thanks to uh, Jonathan McPants for helping us pull some clips and figuring out that that pump up the volume clip was the way to go for the Gen X kind of defining statement. Uh, but special uh, thanks to Lily Tyson, senior producer uh, of the Colin McEnroe Show. She is the producer of this episode as well. Bobby Duffy is still with us. His book, The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. Now joining us is Ziad Ahmed, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Juve Consulting, a purpose-driven Generation Z consultancy that works with clients to help them reach young people. One year ago, uh, Ziad was sitting in my Yale poli-sci class wondering why in the world he had picked this particular thing to spend his waning college moments doing. Uh, but, But here he is, back on the air with me again. Welcome back. Good to hear from you. I'm happy to be back on a Zoom screen with you. Uh, and no, it was, a, it was a pleasure and privilege to end my college career on a high learning from you. All right. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I know you well enough to know that you you probably agree with a lot of what Bobby's saying about generations being a sort of blunt instrument way of trying to understand anything. On the other hand, if there aren't defining characteristics to Generation Z, you're going to have to close up shop by this late this afternoon, probably. So, uh, so say a little bit more about that. How, how do you see the distinction? I obviously think there's something arbitrary about how we define generations, right? Um, and I, I think to the earlier discourse that I, that I listened to a bit of, right, like, especially given how rapidly digital innovation is changing, right? Like, you know, you, there's a lot of arguments that generations are actually smaller, right? Because um, how distinct we are based on the ways that we communicate are maybe happening on, you know, even more frequently than historically generations and one generation sort of raising the next. But I also think at the same time, it's important, right, that we have these this vocabulary to talk about the fact that the age that you were when certain seminal moments in society happened does impact the way that you move through the world, the way that you see yourself and the world around you, right? And I think it is important that we have vocabulary to empower a cohort of people who perhaps isn't always included in the conversation. So when I talk about Gen Z, I don't talk about, about us as a monolith. I talk about us as a young demographic that often isn't included in the conversation that ought to be because of our varied experience and because of how unique sort of life circumstances have occurred to us that have transformed the way that we move to the marketplace through political spheres and beyond. Um, I think that's critical to analyze if we're going to get a good pulse in the present or the future. Yeah, there's so much I would like to ask you about, but um, in the limited time, I don't, I don't think we've said the word pandemic yet here on this particular episode, but it's time to say it, right? I mean, I'm in my 60s dealing with this pandemic in a different way and basically discovering that, that people don't care about me. They say, look, it mainly only affects old people. Don't worry about it. Uh, but, but if you're in Generation Z, if, you're, if your youth is unfolding against the backdrop of that pandemic, in, in a lot of the ways that Bobby writes about, that is probably going to define you marching forward even post-pandemic. Ziad, how do you see that? Like, I graduated from college in a pandemic, right? And the ways that my mindset has shifted, because I'm usually on this hamster wheel, hamster wheel, the pandemic made me and my peers in this, like, year to just think and analyze. And we're now in this, like, state of, like, hyper-existentialism is distinct from how this impacted my mom or how this impacted my baby sister who's eight, right? And so I think fundamentally, like, when you look at Generation Z, our lifetimes have been bookmarked, right, by 9-11 and the pandemic in the middle. We've seen a financial crisis, you know, almost continuous warfare, tremendous political and domestic you know, turmoil. And so our worldview, our perspective is shaped by those experiences and the age that we were when they happened to us because our own sensibilities, right, 
happen, you were developed during these seminal moments, right? And so I think it's impossible for, for me to not think of the world and myself differently because of the pandemic, because the moment that I was sort of finding myself is the moment that the world discovered this pandemic, right? Um, and, and I think that will sit with me for a long time and, and absolutely transform, you know, huge, huge majorities of my generation. Yeah, Bobby, one of the things that I think that you've written about, and I think is really interesting too, I mean, as a white baby boomer, I saw a generation uh, of white baby boomers who, you know, mm. who, who I gave a lot of lip service to the idea of inclusiveness and diversity and embracing the plight and values of people of color. But by the time they hit their 30s, they really didn't know people of color. I mean, they were, this big sort happened. They were living in mostly white neighborhoods, sending their kids to white schools. I see Ziad's generation really differently. They, they really are. Uh, I mean, everything that they talk about, they also live with. And maybe maybe I'm overpraising them, Bobby, but that's how it seems. Yeah, I mean, this is um, it's a continuation of a trend that has started. But yes, absolutely. You're still moving forward in that, that sense of uh, greater diversity and, and greater contact. And that's really important. That is that is uh, that shifts attitudes and behaviors in a, in a really important way. I mean, I, I do think we have to recognize it. There's been a long march. Um, uh, to to more inclusive, more tolerant attitudes that you can see across societies that um, older generations have moved along too. So I, I, I see it. The, the risk is goes back to that Obama risk of um, uh, of seeing this as a break rather than a continuation of a trend. Because and it, it part, the reasons are it it partly puts it kicks the can down the road slightly and lets older generations off the hook for not following through on on equality we sort of push it to this younger generation who truly believe in it and they can sort it out for us but it but also it puts huge expectations on that that generation and a lot of the data that i look at in terms of attitudes and behaviors looks doesn't look like a clean break this doesn't look like a generation that is going to absolutely break on those types of attitudes or behaviors around equality it does look like it's a continue continuing to progress generation uh, but not a sudden revolution. And and that's really important. We need to plan for that. We need to make sure the reason you don't want to give that false sense of, oh, it's all sorted now uh, and it's just <laughs> going to work with this new generation. We need to keep working at those uh, the really important um, drives for equality. So I'm just going to be cryogenically frozen. You guys figure it out. That's not a legitimate position for me to take. Uh, all right. <laughs> so, um, see, so you've got about 60 seconds left. I assume you'd like to react to what Bobby just said. Absolutely, it's important that we're having intergenerational, intergenerational dialogue, right, to solve the issues that we're trying to talk about. And I think that there is this sense of punting to the next generation to solve the problem. But I do think the way that we're going to approach the problem because of the distinct lived experiences that we had in the age that we are currently will impact our approach, right? And I think having these different approaches actually makes the solutions richer, right? And so I hope for a world in which all of us are working together to solve right problems like systemic inequality. But I think right now what happens all too often is Gen Z is forgotten in those conversations. And really, we ought to be a critical part of it. Because by punting, sometimes you divorce and separate and say, go solve it yourself, wires. Instead, you should be saying, look, Gen Z plays a critical role in the solution. Let's empower them at the table and let's solve this together. 
All right. We have to stop there. So great to talk to you, Bobby Duffy. The book is terrific, too. The Generation Myth, Why When You're Born Matters Less Than You Think. Ziad, great to hear you. Um, if you hear tension in my voice, I'm in, in ad drop hell right now again. Uh, so that's what's going on. Um, I remember it fondly. <laughs> all right. So they call it shopping at Yale, which I really hate, too. All right. So we have to go. Thanks again to Gina Matruna for stepping in and, of course, to the great uh, Lily Tyson for producing. 